Good evening. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, live from our studio here in North Minneapolis. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. Uh, this is our weekly excursion into the world of achievement, where we bring you achievers in all fields of human endeavor, uh, where we focus on business, family, and ideas. Ideas my favorite category because you can uh, talk about any subject with ideas, and I love ideas anyway. Uh, that's a saying. I don't totally agree with it that uh, small minds talk about people. Uh, average minds talk about events, and great minds talk about ideas. So that's why I like the idea category. Uh, in an era where we focus so much on personality and people, uh, I just love to talk about ideas and what what's being said rather than who's saying it. Uh, having said that, uh, I normally do a week recap, uh, but I will forego some of that this evening because our guest is on a t uh, tight timeline. I, I got about 30 minutes with this man. I'm fortunate to have, have that 30 minutes. Our guest tonight is Dr. Scott Jensen. And uh, uh, welcome, Scott, to Bright Lights. And uh, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing fine, Lacey. And I just want to say thank you for having me on your show. I uh, enjoy the way you look at the world. And so I look forward to a robust conversation. Uh, yeah, and I look forward to a robust conversation myself. And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize some of the great accomplishments that uh, Scott has achieved over over the years. Originally from Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, graduated valedictorian from Sleepy Eye High School. Uh, he, he's currently uh, married with three children, living in what city are you living in right now, Scott? Waconia? Waconia School District, Chaska. Yeah, and Chaska. Yeah, and three children. I think your wife is a veterinarian. Am I correct there? Uh, Scott attended the Luther Theological Seminary. He graduated from University of Minnesota, I think with a degree in physiology. Uh, he was a Bush fellow. Uh, he went to medical school, um, did his practice, uh, and uh, what did they call it, residency. And now he has a uh, practice, family physician. Uh, he's a family physician at Catalyst Medical Clinic. Uh, and he's also been a clinical associate professor uh, at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Uh, are you still doing that uh, uh, professor professorship work, uh, Scott? Are you still involved in that? No, I retired in 2020. Okay. And I do know that he was voted the uh, Family Physician of the Year in 2016. And what I know about Scott and haven't met him, I know he's a great family physician and it doesn't surprise me uh, he got that award. Uh, Scott, uh, I just gave a high level uh, recap of your uh, education and career and growing up in Sleepy Eye. But just before we delve into uh, some of the things you're doing now, uh, what motivated you? What happened during your childhood that could have predicted that uh, you would end up uh, uh, as a family physician and very much involved in your community and politics? Is there anything that happened back in your childhood that would have uh, kind of let us know that you grew up to uh, have such a successful career? Well, I was blessed. I was blessed with um, my mom was my best friend and my dad was my hero. I was the middle child of five. And early on, it was very clear that my parents expected me to to achieve that which I could achieve. I remember our dinner, dinner table conversations. Uh, we didn't talk about people. Uh, we talked a little bit about events. 
but most of the time we talked about ideas and solutions as to how we can make the world better. And if someone at the table said something silly, dad would frequently give you a stare that sort of sent a message that maybe you should keep your mouth shut until you have something intelligent to say. So it was a, it was a fairly grueling dinner table that we had, but it helped train all of us to engage the world. Well, I picked up on the fact that you are a middle child, I think, and I'm a middle child also. I don't know what's the significance of that. Uh, but if it was like, if you were like me, you were fortunate to have uh, great older siblings and great younger siblings. I heard you mention your parents, and uh, we all know the difference it makes in having two parents. Uh, like you, my dad was my hero. Uh, my mom was my greatest influencer. And so we are both blessed to have come out of that uh, type of environment. Uh, so I do know, tell us a little bit about your family practices uh, you have out in uh, Waconia, Chaska, uh, 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 cities, uh, neighborhoods. Well, I was in dental school and I enjoyed the chemistry and the biology and the anatomy very much, but I just didn't like teeth. So I left and went to spend a year at the seminary. I studied there. That was a big year for me. I decided to go into medicine. I asked my girlfriend if she'd marry me, and Mary and I have been together 43 years. But when I went into medicine, I knew that I wanted to be a family doctor because I like people. I like the relationships. I like talking with people. So I did um, family practice for 15, 16 years with a larger clinic, and then in the year 2000 decided that I wanted to build my own clinic. I wanted to have a clinic that would really elevate the patient into the role of being their own best champion. I oftentimes tell my patients, if there's a professional boxer in, in this room and a trainer in the corner, I'm the trainer in the corner, but it's my patient who has to go out and daily fight the battle of life. And I want them to know that I'm in the corner ready to help as they need it. And so we started Catalyst Medical Clinic. And when I say we, I mean my family, my wife and I and our three children. And we started that in 2001. And we could never have guessed that we would someday have 12 to 15,000 patients with two different offices, one in Watertown and one in Chaska. And we just have the best darn patients. They sustain me every day. Lacey, being a family doctor and having spent a year doing um, a lot of dermatology work and skin surgery was a real addition for me. So I enjoy doing skin surgery and I remove a lot of tumors squamous cells and basal cells and melanomas. So I've had just a, a really a George Bailey kind of life. I've had a wonderful life. Well, I don't want to spend uh, too much time specifically in the healthcare, but it is an issue. Uh, what uh, are some of the biggest, uh, one or two of the biggest changes you've seen in the healthcare industry in the 20 years that you've uh, operated your uh, medical practice? besides the price and cost and stuff like that, any trends that your witnesses, uh, positive or negative one way or the other, uh, doctor? I think we maybe had a little bit of an internet yeah. connection did, problem. Did you hear me? Uh, just, just the trends in, in, in medicine uh, over the past 20 years that you've been uh, practicing. Which is funny. Probably the biggest change has been that the patient seems to have been relegated to more of a pawn on a chessboard of healthcare. We've got big government and big insurance and big pharma. And oftentimes the patient is left to fend for themselves and try to navigate a difficult path. 
I think physicians are less inclined to see the role of being a doctor as a calling, and it's a little bit more of a job. And I think that's hard for patients to transition. I think there's a downside to that. Doctors might like their lifestyle more, but I think in terms of, if you will, prolonged satisfaction with the career choice of being a doctor probably isn't as likely. I think that's where I feel very, very blessed that I still do house calls. I really like medicine upfront and personal. So I think that's a big change. And then I think the other change is we continue this trend over the last 30, 40 years of pushing pills. We make up about 4% of the population in the world, but we probably consume some 30 to 40, 45% of all prescription drugs. And I think we, we delude ourselves into thinking that there's a pill for every problem. There isn't. Right. Well, and I always uh, plan to have guests on for the second time around. And perhaps the next time we'll focus on the whole medical uh, system here in the country, uh, as they say, in the West. Uh, it seems like to me the whole idea you get sick and they push pills at you rather than doing the things like exercise and diets and things that uh, would prevent us from more preventive type of uh, things. Uh, my brother-in-law has a saying, he says, uh, your food is your medicine. And I think if we had that type of attitude towards a lot of this stuff, we won't be getting into these things where we're getting sick and coming to you and you got to push pills or other doctors. You don't do that. I'm quite sure it pushes many pills. Uh, so uh, let's talk about your political because you have been involved in your community. I know you served on the school board. Uh, I also know that you were Minnesota senator. Uh, starting in 2016, and currently uh, you're a candidate for governor of Minnesota. So let's talk a little bit first about uh, your involvement. You started out, it looks like, uh, want to get involved with the school board and issues in education. What motivated you to do that, uh, Scott? That was in the early 1990s, and I was actually recruited by some community leaders. The Waconia School District had had a referendum for a new school building failed twice. And it was getting desperate. Uh, the population was beginning to grow. There was no space. And yet, if you will, the voters weren't quite ready to sign on to the project. So I was asked if I would lead the charge along with another community leader uh, named Paul Melkert. And so we did. And we we took on the, the task of trying to go out and meet the community. And, and share with them why it was important that this uh, referendum pass. And we got it passed. It was a, a close vote, but we got it passed. And I found it real satisfying. And my kids were in school at the time. They were in grade school. And people asked me if I would think about running for school board. And I said, well, maybe I would. So I ended up doing it. And I served 10 years. I was chairman three years. And I did enjoy it. Uh, but I also learned many valuable lessons. Clearly, when you're on the school board, you don't always have the ability to recognize what issues are going to emerge and how intensely they may be bantered about in the community. My dad was in politics from Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, and dad was in the Senate. And I remember dad could pretty much tell people back in Brown County, Sleepy Eye, what was happening in St. Paul. And he had his own slant, of course. When you're on a school board, you don't get to do that because people have you under a magnifying glass. So it's tough work. 
Yeah, and Lois, let's spend a little time on education. Uh, I told you, you're aware that we come to you live from North Minneapolis, inner city. Uh, it has a history here and across the country of economically disadvantaged communities and communities of color. We got this thing with the educational achievement gap. And I think you have some prescription for how we uh, go about closing that gap. And I think you have some ideas about school choice. Why don't you uh, share that with us? Always with the ideas of how we change results, uh, Scott. And at the end of the day, uh, that's what I like to focus on. And that's what I like to change is results. So right now, uh, and I tell the story all the time, uh, I'm tired of coming across ninth graders reading at first grade levels. We got all kinds of issues with dropouts. Uh, hardly any of our children are reading at uh, high school level when they graduate from high school. Uh, what's your prescription uh, for uh, uh, bringing quality education to the inner city, Scott? Well, I'll say right off the bat, the prescription is not a pill. The prescription <laughs> is a lot of hard work. When I was on the school board, I learned that you cannot come in as a heavy-handed school board and say, there's a new sheriff in town we're going to make this school district better. You have to create somehow a fire in the belly of the key stakeholders. And those key stakeholders are parents, teachers, and the kids. And I think that school choice has to be a part of it because when I go across the state of Minnesota, whether I'm in North Minneapolis, South St. Paul, Edina, or Virginia, Minnesota, parents want the same thing. They don't want their kids stuck in a dead-end school district. They want their kids to have a menu of opportunities because kids learn differently. And we have got to do a better job of touching how do kids learn best? Are they learning visually? Are they learning hands-on? Are they audio learners? Do they learn in front of a cathode ray tube? How can we connect with them best? We have to quit thinking of teachers as the teacher's union. Teachers go into teaching because they want to touch kids' lives. We need to remember that Oftentimes, a political organization may not really represent its members as closely as people might think. I certainly don't want people thinking of me as a family doctor based on what they think of the American Medical Association. So I am convinced that we have a tremendous resource with our teachers, and we need to connect those teachers with the parents. Parents have every right to be powerfully involved in their kids' education. We don't have an education system so that we can indoctrinate kids. We have an education system so that we can have a foundational education in place for each kid so they can read and write and do basic math and dream dreams and sprout wings and go pursue and achieve those dreams. We've got to do a better job. And I know that oftentimes in multicultural communities, we aren't, we aren't remembering that one size doesn't fit all. You just can't do a cookie cutter approach. But I think school choice has to be a big part of it. We've got to fund kids, not broken institutions. We've got to make sure that every school district realizes that they've got to do the job or they might be in trouble. And we've got to have a broad menu of services, whether we're talking about charter schools, public schools, private schools, home schools, whatever. And I think we have to do a better job of looking at the trades, looking at the colleges, I think we spend too much time sending kids to colleges at a real high expense level. I did some of my uh, training when I learned to fly at uh, technical schools 
And I found those to be remarkably, if you will, common sense based. And I, I learned a ton. So I think we really have to take a hard look at how we're doing it. Okay. And, you know, it's been my experience. And once again, I think I know a little bit about the education system that the challenge is those uh, children from broken homes where the parents uh, currently uh, for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, are not involved in the children's education. And because they have challenges themselves, that it's very difficult for them to really get involved in the education. And I've just seen uh, times when the school is expecting things of the parents where I know the parents, uh, they have their own issue and they want to deliver. I guess that's a long way of asking. What do we do about children from broken family where the parents are not available to get involved in their education. Those are the challenges. And and, and some of them from, from very difficult households. What do we do about that, uh, Scott? I think it's like a lot of things that I deal with in medicine. Early detection. We need to identify at an early level who's at risk. We need to try to make it so that in families where we have single parents, we need to find out how can we most efficiently help those parents get what they need to get and stay closely in touch with what their kids are learning or not learning. I think we need to make certain that parents, whether they're a two-parent family or a single-parent family, we need to make certain that they can get really very efficiently sort of a dashboard of what really matters. And I think if we do that, what we can find is that there'll be a, a connection between all the parents and the teachers at a better level. And I think that hopefully a part of that would be that early detection. Let's identify at four years of age, at five years of age. Let's not wait until we're in third grade and then we see that we're seeing a student lag two or three levels. And I think we need to have our administrators work a little bit more to support the teachers so that the teachers in the classroom can really make certain that they're bringing their kids along at the level that they should be brought along at. Sometimes I think teachers just pull their hair out because they feel like they're faced with an impossible task. Well, we're short on time, so we're going to uh, cycle through a few issues here uh, that's uh, on everybody's mind uh, in Minnesota and across the nation. Crime. Uh, and uh, we ha we've had an uptake in crime, not only here in Minnesota, but specifically in the metro area and a lot of cities across the country. What do we do about crime? And uh, the follow-up to that, uh, Scott, will be uh, what do we do about uh, police reform, if anything, about that? So first of all, the crime uh, wave that we've seen, especially here in the metro area, and across the state and across the country. What's going on there, Scott, and what do we do about it? Well, without question, public safety is is perhaps the issue of the day. I think that it starts with cops. you got to have police on the streets. They've got to be constantly reforming, just as healthcare clinics and hospitals are doing the same. Just because the legislature doesn't successfully pass a list of reform measures doesn't mean that your police departments aren't desperately trying to do what they do to the best of their abilities and, and to go beyond. So I think we need to realize that we need cops on the street. The idea of defunding the police makes no sense to me at all. I think incarceration has to be 
used as a deterrent. I've spent some time in North Minneapolis, Lacey, talking to folks. And, and what I've been told is a lot of times the bad people, they, they're identifiable. But neighbors and communities aren't going to rise up and work closely with the police if they think that these felons and criminals are going to be back on the street in two or three months. I'm afraid that incarceration has been not the deterrent it could be. So I think that's a problem. And I think we have to recognize that this is not a Minneapolis problem. This is a Minnesota problem. We may, in Minneapolis, need certain things out of a police department that in Sleepy Eye, where I grew up, we don't need. Because where I grew up, our police needed to be first responders from a health perspective because they're frequently the first ones on the scene for a heart attack or a stroke. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, they've got significant issues with drug overdoses, homicides, violent crimes, that we need to be able to turn the work of first response to paramedics and EMTs and to the ambulance services and the hospitals that already populate the, the urban area substantially. We need to really let police do what police do. And I think sometimes we have expectations of police that they'll do whatever, whatever the community says. That's not realistic. So I, I think those are some key issues, but I think we have to appreciate and respect that when a policewoman or a policeman goes on a shift, they don't know what they're going to encounter. So they're going to have to be cautious. Uh, you mentioned incarceration. A lot of that is due to the war on drugs. A lot of the police presence in these inner city communities is due to the war on drugs. Uh, I think most people agree that it has not uh, achieved the results that it's supposed to achieve. In fact, a lot of times, exact opposite results. Uh, and you and I have talked about this uh, uh, Will Buckley, who's I consider the father of modern conservatism and people like uh, so uh, a lot of conservative are also libertarians, and they are not in favor of the war on drugs. Where do you stand on that and legalization of marijuana and uh, things like that and the potential impact it would have on the inner city and, and, and lowering the, the incarceration rate? When you talk about Thomas Sowell and Buckley, right. I think you're spot on, Lacey. These, these are pioneers in thought, and I think – it would be an odd thing for a person to say, gee, the war on drugs, I, I don't agree with it. And yet I think I think you're right. The war on drugs has not met hopes or expectations. I think that we've been slow to, if you will, step back and take a 30,000 foot view of this. Fact of the matter is, I would say that the war on drugs has helped perpetuate many minority communities from and denying them the opportunity for a better life. I think that it has broken relationships. It has undermined business development. I think it's high time that we have strong conversations and actions on decriminalizing trivial amounts of drugs, expunging records. In terms of legalization of marijuana, I don't think the 201 legislators should be making that decision. I think Minnesota should be having a broad-based conversation. And at some point in time, Minnesota will decide. I think there's still significant encumbrances in terms of legalizing marijuana, in terms of safe operation of motor vehicles. Is this a gateway drug or a gateway opportunity? Is it a corridor to a better life or a worse life? 
That's a conversation that Minnesotans have to have. And we need to make certain that we don't have 201 legislators entrusted with it, because oftentimes what you have is at the end of a session, that 201 legislators actually only become four or five legislators. And I refuse to have four or five people decide for all of Minnesota. Okay, so Scott, I'm I'm conscious of our time. We're gonna hit a few issues here uh, with probably the COVID response, and I know you've uh, uh, had some publicity along that line. Uh, Second Amendment, gun control, and uh, just your time at Planned Parenthood. So I just give you a chance to address those three issues for sure, and see can we maybe squeeze some more in here. Uh, the COVID response. Um, We've shut down businesses. We've uh, had people isolated at home. We, we, we're requiring, at least some places, requiring everybody to be vaccinated, even those people who've had COVID and got over it, naturally immune to it uh, by nature. What's your take on how we've been handling this COVID and the response to that and the requirements? And a lot of people would argue the infringement on personal uh, freedom and liberty. Give, give me your take on how we've handled this and what you would do differently uh, if you have uh, the uh, wherewithal to address the issue. I think that we have to recognize that this is uncharted territory. I think Governor Walls was put in a spot where this was tremendously challenging and he certainly could never have anticipated it. Fact of the matter is this is the transformational event in my life. Having said that, early on we could see that lockdowns weren't accomplishing what we were told they would. Locking nursing home patients in to die alone, locking families out, locking kids out of school, it didn't work. Telling people that they couldn't operate their business because they weren't essential or safe didn't work. We saw a broad-based expansion of government. And if you will, we saw one person deciding whether or not someone could pay their bills or not. So the notion that a cookie cutter approach would work was faulty. We should have trusted Minnesota citizens to make good choices. We should have tried to, as much as possible, retain local control wherever we could. The characteristics of Kitson County, Minnesota, were vastly different than the characteristics of Hennepin County. I think that when we got to the discussion regarding not overwhelming our healthcare facilities and flattening the curve, Minnesotans were on board. But when the lockdowns became extended and when the second lockdown allowed haircuts when the first one didn't, I think we were seeing that the trust was broken. We were seeing backroom deals. We were seeing politicians do what politicians do. And people said no. And then the vaccines came along. And all of a sudden, health freedom and health privacy information and HIPAA all of a sudden became for naught. And it was like we'd gone crazy in America saying that if you didn't make the choice, that I think you should make, it means you're not up to handling the science. We had minority communities who made their own assessment. They might have made the assessment the same that I did. And they were being told, well, you clearly have a problem handling the science. This was wrong on so many counts, Lacey. We literally, it, it's unbelievable what we did. But let me jump in because I know we're short on time. Right. In terms of plan, in terms of Planned Parenthood, as a part of my residency, we always have to, as a family practice, you always have to find a way to get experience. And we found our obstetric experience generally satisfied in the hospital where we deliver babies. But from a gynecology experience, frequently residents didn't have enough exposure to uh, doing 
female exams and things like that. So part of our residency included rotation with the preceptor at Planned Parenthood facilities and whereby pap smears would be done, STDs would be treated, birth control pills would be prescribed under the watchful eye of our preceptor. So that's what the, 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 the fuss was about that. Now, I never worked for Planned Parenthood. I worked for the University of Minnesota as a family practice resident, and I did what I was told in terms of trying to achieve and satisfy the requirements I had as a resident. In terms of Second Amendment rights, if I were governor, I would like to see us pass a stand your ground bill as well as a constitutional carry bill. And I would like to ban red flag legislation because I think it absolutely eliminates our due process as well as violates the Second Amendment rights. Those are some of the hot issues for me, uh, Lacey. Okay. And I saw, I think on your website, you did address the whole taxes issues. I do know a lot of uh, high net uh, value people, net worth people who are moving out of Minnesota because of the taxes. What would you do about the tax situation and how would you make the state uh, more business friendly, uh, especially in terms of rebuilding and bringing back businesses? Well, what would you, how would you handle that situation, Scott, as governor? I would create policies with the help of businesses. We need to have more small businesses and we need to specifically do a better job of providing the minority community with the opportunity to start small businesses which have the likelihood of succeeding. We need to reduce regulations. We need to seriously think about the environment in which business takes place. The culture in Minnesota is not advantageous for businesses to either expand in or move into Minnesota. I think we have to look at our supply chains. Minnesota has been a strong business community, but we are losing out and we've got to stop. We have to consider what is it going to take for investors to come to Minnesota and say, hey, we want to help. We want to downsize government so that we can upsize people. If we can do that, we're going to work. Energy costs are a significant thing. We can't make closed-minded decisions about energy because it'll hurt us. And never again should we have an emperor kind of approach telling people your business has to shut down, but yours gets to stay open. You can't go to the local hardware store, but you can go to the largest candy store. You can't go to church, but you can go to the big box liquor store. Never again. And last, we have to look at our tax structure. In virtually every level of taxation, Minnesota is in the top five and it's killing us. Lacey, you and I both know that when you have people that have a income of $200,000 or a net worth of $200,000 moving out of the state, and the average person moving in has a net worth of perhaps less than $50,000, that's not the way to build a strong state. We need to keep our entrepreneurs, our high wealth people in the state, not because of their wealth specifically, but because frequently they are innovators, and we need that innovation. We really do. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time. It was too short, by the way, but we maybe we can set something up. I know you've been very busy on the campaign trail. Uh, do you have one last thing you want to leave with the audience, and then we'll let you go because I know you got another engagement you have to go to. Well, thank you, Lacey. I would say this. I want people to know me. I think a campaign should be about building a relationship. This is a time for me to be transparent. Our website is drscottjensen.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And I would like people to go there because we've done our best to try to put our positions on the issues right in front of you. I don't expect you to agree with me 100% of the time. I don't agree with me 100% of the time. But if we agree 80% of the time, we're not 20% traitors to one another. We're allies. 
And we have got to consider that if we're going to try to promote and push forward conservative values, at some level, we have to not cannibalize one another. We have to say, let's find the common ground. Let's get the job done. Let's safeguard the things that we think are valuable about Minnesota and move forward. It has to be a movement in Minnesota because we've been going the wrong direction for quite some time. And I sure appreciate being on, Lacey. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you going out there and running for office. I know how difficult and challenging it is. You got to be dedicated and committed. So good luck. We'll be talking soon. And let's go out and try to make Minnesota a better place, make the Twin Cities a better place, and make this country a better place. Thanks, Scott, for being on. And look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Lacey. All right. Are we off? Can I talk without? Can you hear me still, Scott? Yeah. Okay. Thank you.